songs. Okay, so we're in the fourth layer of hell. Songs of the Dark Lantern is the title of the episode. Dante moves. We move from the circle of lust in the Inferno, which was a type of sin that generally requires more than one participant. You know, cranking it aside, masturbation aside, lust is a sin that is, you know, better with better with more participation. Don't I know it? <laughs> um, we, <laughs> we move to the the third circle of hell, which is uh, more isolatory. As we go deeper into hell, too, a lot of these sins. Not that they don't affect each other, but they are uh, isolatory in their nature. So this is the episode where they end up in the tavern. What would you guess is this circle of hell? What's the what's the theme? Um, gluttony. Ding 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 ding. Oh ha! Hell yeah. So this is sort of set up because they're hiding in the in over the garden wall. They're hiding in the back of a cart and talking about how hungry they are. This episode also opens up in this sort of rainy, stormy, dark woods, right? I mean, okay, they've been in the woods, but it, the, the, the weather has now turned. It is, it is raining and it is storming. And the exact same thing is going on in the Inferno because the circle of the gluttons is not populated. Um, how would I phrase this? The weather in the circle of gluttons is just the worst. Think Seattle in the middle of winter. Like, just terrible. A stinking slush falls from the sky and collects on the ground where naked shades howl and roll in the mire. So just sort okay. of, I would think, evoking a pigsty, which I think is mean to pigs, because I really love pigs, and I don't like all the flack they get. They're supposed to be good at eating. We're not going to get into fat phobia here either, because that's a whole nother discussion. Um, but I think pigs get a... Uh, pigs are used as an insult more than they should be. They're very neat creatures. Like, literally clean yeah, creatures. Yeah, they're clean. Anyways. They're like clean animals. They just can't they... sweat, so they use mud to cool themselves down, which is fine. Don't be People rude about it. People pay hundreds of dollars to do that at the spa. Thank you. Yeah, it's not their fault that they're not getting you know, designer mud. They just have the mud that they have. Don't be rude. At first um, you were saying um, that it just, like, rains, like, Seattle in the winter, and I was like, ooh, forks, twilight. <laughs> and then you're like, sludge! I'm like, oh, maybe not. Well, I, you know, I have never spent a winter in the uh, northwest coast. I have spent a, a win- many winters in the northeast coast, uh, and I have heard the snow isn't snowy enough, is what I've heard. I'm sure it varies. Um, this, they find this tavern and they try to enter and their entrance is blocked by a large sheepdog, which is a little wink nod to Cerberus, uh, the dog that stands guard at the gate of Hades. Now, in Greek mythology in the underworld, Cerberus is just, like, out there. Although, Cerberus is sometimes put before Charon, when in actuality you have to cross the river Styx with the boatman, Karen, before you even get to where Cerberus is. And you oftentimes have to go through judgment before you get to where Cerberus is. So this is actually a slightly more accurate depiction of his placement, despite the fact that most modern mythology has him as sort of the first thing you encounter, if that makes sense. Um, but again... All depictions of, of all afterlifes are all going to have inconsistencies 
because they're all going off of secondhand recounts or they're making it up, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. I feel like now is a great time to um, ask this question. Have you, um, have you heard of the book, like, 27 Minutes in Hell by Bill Weesey? No, I don't think so. Oh, What's... my God. It's, like, just, it's just some guy, like, some guy recently insisting that he died and went to hell, like, the Christian hell, because he oh, was, like, God. not, like, but not because he's a bad guy, but because God sent him there so he could tell everyone how bad hell is so they'd become Christians. I googled it. It's 23 minutes in hell. 23 minutes in hell. Right. My bad. I thought it was 23, and I was like, that's wrong. It's 27. 27 is far more impressive. That extra five minutes really sells it. <laughs> yeah. I believe him if it was 27, but since it's 23, it's like, bruh. Yeah. But that's yeah, pathetic. he's can't. <laughs> insisting that he was dead and in hell, and he Wild. did like a tour. I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. I, I don't know. I'll have to check it out. I haven't heard that. That sounds very interesting. I sure would love to get a vision. I've done lots of hallucinogenics, still haven't had visions kind of a bummer oh my god i had visions from an edible get on my level jesus so in the over the garden wall we have this little sheep dog as cerberus in the inferno cerberus is cerberus he is a giant three-headed dog that's just he's not necessarily even guarding anything he just stands over the people rolling around in this mud and barks at them and then sometimes claws and bites them if they get too close to him and they, they are mostly trying to not get close to him. Um, and they're also eating the mud. Ew. Like, there's nothing to eat, but they're gluttons. So they're eating, they're just shoveling what they're in into their mouth. Oh my god, Dante's canceled for fat phobia. It really, yeah, him. it's not, I would, because, yeah. And it just gets worse from here. Like, every, every layer gets worse, which oh, is the point. I'm sure. I wish it was just, like, you know, in the good place where they have, like, the penis stretchers and, like, they fill people with bees. Yeah, yeah. Like, talk about it. Let's do that. <laughs> Flatten That's equal people. opportunity. What was, the, what was the one guy in charge of, like, hot, sticking hot dogs and people or something? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I really love, the, whoever wrote The Good Place legitimately did their research on all sorts of different philosophies of the afterlife and also does a really good job of not taking any of it too seriously because like having frozen yogurt that tastes like having a fully charged phone and then having hell where it's like yeah we're gonna shove bees in your penis like it's because that's the like that's the pop culture idea of hell but it's backed up by these deep philosophical concepts and i that's why i love the good place oh one yeah of I, it, one of the best shows ever made so in, uh, in the Inferno, Cerberus actually turns on Virgil and Dante and sort of makes like he's maybe going to attack them. Dante freaks out, obviously. Not good at this. Virgil throws handfuls of the mud into Cerberus's three mouths, and that shuts him up. Which, it's an impressive feat. I don't know why Dante put it in there. Because I think it's just, like, he's, I don't know. I feel bad for Cerberus. He's, he doesn't know what's going on. He's just a puppy. Well, he's just a big, big, scary dog. He didn't need, you didn't need to make him eat dirt. He's just a big little guy. I'm always, I will always side with the person or being or whatever who's just there. Like, the guy who's just, whether, whatever it is, if they're just, like, 
there and then they get fucked with just for being there. I always feel bad for them. Like, I always feel bad for the henchmen in movies who are the, the guy with a gun outside some warehouse that the good guy's trying to break into and they get their neck snapped. Like, he's just a guy. He's just a guy. You didn't need to snap his neck. It's rude. Uh, whatever. Um... Like, he had a mortgage problem. I would argue that all of humanity is kind of just there. Well, no, because there is, like, the villain who is, like, knowingly participating in and causing the problems. It's like showing up to an Amazon warehouse and punching the guy, you know, taping the boxes together. And being like, Jeff Bezos sucks. And then being like, I know, I'm just here. Like, at least punch the manager. <laughs> if you're gonna punch somebody, Cerberus isn't even the manager. At least punch middle management. Yeah. Don't go for box folder number seven. So they show up to this tavern, which is itself, I think, sort of a symbol of, if not gluttony, it's a it's a good time place, right? Like in medieval times, taverns are depicted as being places where you go to get good food, a place to sleep, maybe a woman or man on the side, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. There is some more references to classical cartoons in this episode, very specifically with the Tavern Keeper. Do you want to guess who she is an, um, uh, an homage to? Um... Famous cartoon character. Boop, 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 ba Betty Boop? Betty Boop. Okay, tell me why I thought that with no basis, but then was like, that's dumb, I shouldn't say that. It's the voice and it's the hair. Because she does have a very, like, squeaky Betty Boop voice. And her face is that sort of, like, weird wide heart shape. And uh, she has the sort of, like, dark curly hair. Betty Boop is actually based on a black woman. Fun I fact. I that recently. Yeah. yeah. Um, Wendy Williams has a statue of black Betty Boop that I am absolutely obsessed with. Because it's Wendy Williams, too. The Also, uh, the High Women. I'm the High Women. His song and the way that he dances, if you remember, he dances in that very weird way where he sort of lunges at the camera and gets all like stretched out and is waving his arms and everything. That's a specific homage to Cab Calloway, who uh, was a famous like jazz singer guy. Uh, also a very cool figure, did music for Betty Boop cartoons specifically too which uh, if you're ever interested in like old cartoons or just a cool piece of media, you should look these up because old school, old, old school cartoons were actually meant for adults before they sort of drifted into just being kids. So there are these really cool black and white cartoons of like skeletons being stripped out of ghosts and Betty Boop dying and being placed in this ice block and a witch. It's, it's really cool. And then it's all set to like St. James Infirmary jazz music. It fucks hard. So this tavern is sort of an, an homage to that uh, flavor of um, animation. There was a lot of rotoscoping as well. This episode was not rotoscoped, but the reason that the old animation style was so, um, what's it called, identifiable, interesting, is because a lot of it was rotoscoped, which is where you film something and then you draw over it, essentially. You animate the frames over it. It's like tracing, but it takes a lot more skill and is very fancy. Um, in this episode, Greg is continuously seen bringing plates of food to the table, but no one in their party ever is seen eating. You never actually see anyone in this, in this uh, uh, level, other than Fred, who you see chewing something. I did make a note of that. Fred is outside chewing something. 
but nobody else in this in this uh, level has ever seen eating. So it is sort of that tantalus, you know, the food is right there, but you can't take a bite ostensibly, or as much as you eat, you are never satisfied. Um, there is also the fun little int- intriguing fact, and I specifically looked into why this was the fact. In this layer of hell, no one has a name other than, you know, Wirt tries to introduce himself as Wirt when they ask who he is, but is sort of dismissed, and they ask, you know, well, okay, you're Wirt, who are you? Because everyone is the tavern keeper, the highwayman, the flautist, the whatever, apprentice, that sort of thing. The souls in, uh, the, 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 the reason given for this is that the souls in upper hell in the inferno want to be remembered on earth, while the souls in the lower levels of hell, as you start getting down there, get more and more reluctant to give Dante their names, probably or ostensibly because of either the shame or the guilt, or they don't want to tarnish their legacy, that sort of thing. There's also an additional hypothetical that I am playing around with, is that this is the layer where everyone here seems to know the most about the beast, and the fact that they sing a song about him and give Wirt advice, and the tavern keeper even specifically is like, no, the person holding the lantern is the beast, which is the first time we hear that fact stated, which starts to cast doubt on the woodman. The beast as a member of the fae, uh, the fair folk in this setting, ostensibly has more power over you if he knows your name. So I like the sort of hypothesis that everyone in this tavern goes by these nicknames in order to keep themselves a, an extra layer of safety for the beast. Uh, or at least as someone who's obsessed with the, the mythology of the Fae, I notice those sorts of things. Um, this is also, this is, this is the episode that convinced me that Dante's Inferno, Over the Garden Wall, was a reference to Dante's Inferno. Because this is the episode that Wirt is labeled the Pilgrim. This is a 100% direct reference to him being Dante, as Dante's journey through hell is labeled a great pilgrimage. So, a pilgrim not necessarily being what we in America may think of, you know, the uh, colonists who came over here and committed a bunch of atrocities against indigenous peoples, and we call them pilgrims, but rather just the blank... Uh, idea of someone on a great journey. So Dante was a pilgrim into hell, and Wirt is a pilgrim into the unknown. Um, We also hear a snippet of the beast singing in this episode, which is what attracts Beatrice's attention into the woods and further casts doubt on the woodman as a good character. The song that the beast sings is called The Jolly Woodsman. It's literally just kind of like, tra-la-la-la, la-la-la-la. And it's a very specific tune taken from this opera adaptation of Hansel and Gretel. And it is sung by the woodsman father in Hansel and Gretel in this opera. So the beast is taking that tune that the, the father of these children sang in the woods and is now using it as a sort of, you know, we could maybe label it as a siren song, or at the very least, his calling card. And it really does. The voice of the beast is just this great baritone. So whether it's singing or speaking, it's rumbly and creepy, and I just love it. 
All right, that brings us to the next uh, level of hell. Now, the way that Wirt and Greg get out of this level is by stealing a horse. And it sort of engages in the sin of the next level, which is fairly easy to identify. The name of this one is Mad Love, which unfortunately for me brings up uh, conjures images of Harley Quinn and the Joker, which I don't <laughs> like as a concept, personally, uh, as it has been executed in the comics. Let me say it that way. Every queer person who has gotten their hands on the Joker and Harley Quinn deserves to be kissed deeply. I also love Margot Robbie. I also love Margot Robbie. Um, yeah, she kicks ass. Her interpretation of Harley Quinn, too, the only valid interpretation of Harley Quinn. But unfortunately, all the men that write her just do it as a sort of fleshlight character to be punched around. She's a fleshlight crossed with a rubber chicken was her original concept as a character. And that sucks. A lot of cool people have done a lot of cool things with her. In the meantime, I just can't wash that taste out of my mouth. That means uh, so much to hear considering my ex um, got me to uh, dress as fucking Harley Quinn uh, for Halloween one year. That's pretty much exactly how he viewed me too. Hate that. Every cishet guy who thinks he's the Joker is going to treat women badly. <laughs> no, I can't even say that. Anyways, I'm not talking about this. But yeah, but that's... No, that's... I, I'll say it. That's 100% guaranteed. It is unsurprising to me that that occurred. Let me put it that way. And this is this is coming from someone who was, who was and is a fan of the Joker, just in a very gay way. I will, I will commit atrocities and justify them by saying in a gay way. In a gay way. It's, it's, it's... If you're gay, you get to do s- terrible things sometimes. <laughs> Queer people can have their little problematic comfort characters as a treat. Yeah. I would say you, I would hope you could guess the sin of this level. Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> Pegging. Don't you dare. <laughs> don't you bring that into this space. <laughs> Quincy Endicott. Let's 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 be fair. Quincy Endicott oh, gets pegged. Yeah, yeah, that's canon actually. That's for that's sure. Canon. Quincy Endicott. We are introduced to Quincy Endicott as a tea baron who lives alone in this vast mansion. As we enter into the circle, yes, of greed. The goal of the group is to get two cents, two pennies. I don't know what I I I don't. I guess American currency. I don't know. Everybody's a different nationality maybe he gives them like shillings who knows uh also fun fact the same guy who voices quincy endicott voices adelaide what yeah oh the range yeah well i mean i can i can almost kind of hear it because adelaide's little like falsetto and quincy endicott sort of like nervous bumbling does but but uh, if you had asked me and i didn't know i wouldn't have guessed so i'm talking out of my ass them requiring two cents in order to pay the ferry fee is another direct reference to Karen, the ferryman who transports deceased souls across the, uh, the river Styx. He also required, in many mythologies, some form of payment. In some versions, he is just the ferryman and he just brings you across and no payment is necessary. It is also a, a misthought, not a misnomer. The Greeks didn't always bury people with coins. It's also when they buried people with money, it wasn't always in their mouth. Um, it's a very poetic notion, and I can understand why 
It, and it did happen, let me be clear. There were people who were buried with money, and there were people who were buried with coins in their mouths under their tongue. There were also people who were buried with coins on their eyelids, although that is debatably also because in ye olden days, before we had all of, all of the uh, fun embalming tricks, like to, to keep people's eyelids shut, they would just be open. Dead people's eyes don't stay shut. They open. Even if they were shut when they died, Ooh. they open eventually. It's something that happens. People's mouths, too. People's Dead people's mouths are just, just hang open. So there was also, in some old-timey funeral homes, a practice of tying a handkerchief or some sort of strip of cloth around people's heads uh, to keep their mouths shut, which is why, uh, anecdotally, the ghost in of Marley in... Um, that's exactly what I was picturing. Shut the fuck up. There you go. Yeah, that's because it's a very it's a it's a famous famous representation of the ghost in uh, the Christmas Carol. There we go. He is he has that handkerchief tied around his head. It is either because of mumps, which a common treatment for mumps was to because your cheeks would get swollen. They would tie a handkerchief around your head to try to like squish the cheeks in. Not a joke. That really we really did that. Now we have vaccines. Get fucking vaccinated so you don't get mumps. Uh, but it also could have been because. He's a dead guy, and they tied his mouth shut. Um, but yeah, the whole penny in the eyes, uh, pennies over the eyes thing was sometimes to keep the eyelids from opening or ostensibly to pay the ferryman. Although it was like an old Irish Catholic tradition in a lot of circles, so I'd imagine that Irish Catholics aren't worried about paying Karen. I mean, Irish Catholics, that's a little, like, debatable. They, they Most of them were pagans before. Um, yeah. That is the flavor of Catholic that I am, too, so... Hey, what word did I just say? Catholic? No. Pagan? Pagans. Hey, did you say... <laughs> pegging? <laughs> See, I know what you're talking about, so I hear pagan. Yeah, some people don't. Some people hear pagan. To be fair, when I'm saying pagan and pagan, I, it's, it is hard for me to hear the difference in my own voice. So, yeah, I'm with you. Um, another placement, another reason that the placement of the coin in or on the mouth may have been so popular uh, was as a seal to pro protect the deceased soul. So either to keep it in there or to prevent it from returning to the body if you believe, you know, it left the body at death and you wanted it to go on up to heaven and not come back and hang around or go back in. I don't know what happens if they go back in. Oh yeah, don't some cultures like plug every hole to like make sure that it can't get back in? I I have, yes, I've heard practices of <laughs> plug every hole. I, it, essentially, yes, yeah, yeah, that, that, was, that was one of the reasons that a coin was used on the mouth. I don't know what they used in other places in those instances. I would say I don't want to know, but I very much do, and I will probably Google it after this. <laughs> God, I'll Google it now, don't try me. Um, some people, some people also, instead of coins, would use rocks or seashells or, you know, whatever for, for eyes, for mouths, for, for, for that sort of thing. But within the frame of over the garden wall, the reason that they need coins is to, very specifically, to pay the ferry to take them to Adelaide's house. So even though they are at this point past the entrance of hell, the river Styx, as a concept, even in the original Greek mythology, didn't just go around hell. Sometimes it went through it. Sometimes it wasn't even the river around the outside of hell. Uh, it was the Acheron was the river on the outside of hell, and the Styx was a smaller, like, moat around uh, the inner parts of hell. Again, the 
topography and geology and geography and choreography here is all sort of up for whatever you're down for. This is not okay, Topeka. Like, we're, we're, we're... The hell in choreography would be... The choreography in hell would be busing. <laughs> they have unlimited time to learn yeah. it. And they're in hell, so I, I just feel like they could probably dance better. Maybe that's a Christian thing in me, though, <laughs> thinking that people in hell could dance better than people in I heaven. Bet you, I bet you the Circle of Lust has some good twerkers. If this is oh, if this sure. is Christian hell, also we can judge it using Christian values. So yeah, you're probably right. That's what I'm assuming because like I'm I'm assuming Dante was <laughs> pagan hell is probably a lot more like pagan people's hell is probably a lot more boring and worse than Christian people's hell because Christian people's hell is like all of the gay people are there, all Jimi Hendrix is there, anyone who did drugs is there, anyone who touched a penis even if it's your own is there. But like pagan hell is just like No that hell actually sounds like the hell that that they've described in the church that I went to as a child sounds so fun. Look, all of my favorite people are in hell or are going. Lil Nas X is And hell. I will also go. Yeah. But pagan hell, that would be sad. Pagan hell is like Hitler and Stalin and all, <laughs> and L. Ron Hubbard. Like, it's just like chomos and like dictators. Yeah. Logan Paul works there. He's not dead yet. He, he's not, he's not dead yet. He just works there as an alive person. He's so good. They recruited him. Have you seen, um, uh, the new like American horror stories, plural? No, I know. I know about it though. I'm just thinking all about the, the episode where they, <laughs> they absolutely, I, spoilers um there's like an episode of like vloggers and it's like clearly logan paul like it's absolutely logan paul so you just get you just watch not logan, logan paul. paul get fucking obliterated by a mall santa yeah oh yeah that's the worst way to die <laughs> mall oh, yeah. santa love that um so go ahead can you guess maybe the uh the punishment in dante's inferno for the misers and the the greedy people, which, fun fact, in this layer of hell, Dante specifies that there are people who spent too much and people who hoarded wealth as well. So there were the the, the spendthrifts, uh, this, you know, the people who were going out and blowing their whole paycheck on whatever. And then there were the, the penny pinchers who never spent money on anything, you know? And they both of those things were considered a sin, at least to Dante. So he put both of those people in this layer of hell. So it wasn't just what you did with the money. It was your attitude towards uh, treating it essentially better than God. So if you cared more about money than you cared about God, however you treated it, you ended up in this layer. Okay. And what do you think the punishment is? So I have two theories. Uh, one is that you get dipped in molten gold like the golden calf. And two Love is that, that you have to fill out tax forms <laughs> um so both are very good uh i don't know what taxes looked like in the 14th century but i don't think there was forms involved so i don't think so it wasn't that love the molten gold thing uh it was actually they were essentially shoving rocks at each other they're described as rolling enormous weights so it's sort of a sisyphus situation meeting dodgeball because i think the concept is that money is the weight and pushing it around is hurting each other 
I think I think Dante is anti-capitalist is what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. Uh because the there so there so there are the hoarders and the wasters, right? So they're pushing rocks back and forth. I don't know if they're rocks. Enormous weights. I'm assuming they're rocks. And the wasters are shouting, "Why do you hoard?" And the hoarders are shouting, "Why do you waste?" And after they slam into each other, they hurry to pull them back only to push them forward again, all while, you know, screaming. So it's this futile sort of dance. And that is represented in a very abstract way in Quincy's back and forth with the ghost woman that actually isn't a ghost. There's also the sub-theme in this episode of madness versus mysticism, and the sort of either-or presented is he saw a ghost or he's crazy. And once again, Over the Garden Wall does an excellent job of subverting that by showing that he didn't see a ghost, and he also wasn't crazy. Although I would argue that a man who just lets two small boys, a horse and a bluebird, into his house, regardless of what happens after that, I would say that there's some questions to his sanity. But he's a super rich guy in a place with talking bluebirds and horses, so I also can't judge his life or his choices. And uh, by doing this service for them, by cracking the mystery, and we get to see a side of Wirt that's a little more competent, I would say, because he is the one to identify what's going on. So we get to see his strengths rather than, and we get to see Greg's weaknesses because he is more focused on him getting to see a ghost rather than getting to the bottom of things, or even, you know, finding pennies. So we see, we get to see a, a positive side of work. The moral of the story at the end is sort of Greg throwing the money away. We see Fred, the talking horse, get a real job. He promises not to steal ever again. So he is redeemed as a, you know, working class hero. Uh, we don't ever really see Endicott or, I forget the woman's name, I'm so sorry. Uh, we, we never get to see their uh, downfall. They are not punished for their wealth, necessarily. Although they do make a bond with another human being, each other, and also Wirt and Greg and Fred and everybody. And their lives are bettered, not because of the wealth, but because of the people in their lives. So that's how I'm going to choose to frame it. Not every rich guy gets to have a, uh, a, a downfall, unfortunately. And uh, we see Greg sort of set his own path and his own direction by throwing away the pennies, saying that he's got no sense, got no sense at all. I like to think of this, again, as a very anti-capitalist way of, you know, thinking of things. Uh, he did just kind of throw him into a, a, a wishing well, and it was only two pennies, and Greg is just kind of a weird guy. So it was just a plot point for them to get maybe kicked off the ferry later, but... We stand, Greg. Okay, but did you see how many pennies were down there? Yes. I'm assuming that... There were so many I'm, pennies. How many people have had this experience? Well, what I was assuming is that Endicott th th threw shit in there all the time for fun. Oh, that makes more sense. But I do... I also like the idea of sort of um, travelers passing through his home on the regular and him just sort of giving away his wealth willy-nilly. Although I do also love that he only gives them... Like, two cents. Like, that's such a rich guy thing to do. He's like, here, start your fortune, and gives them two pennies. Okay, sure. And that actually brings us directly to Lullaby in Frogland. So this is the 
reference that we saw at the beginning of the series in the opening credits where we see those two the mclaughlin brothers playing with the fairy ostensibly that is who they are because we see these two kids playing in a river in weird sort of old-timey outfits and they're playing with a toy version of the fairy that the frogs are on that Wirt and greg and beatrice get on and the name of that fairy is mclaughlin brothers fairy it apparently Unconfirmed, but what I found, references the McLaughlin brothers who published numerous children's books between 1828 and 1920. I, that's, that's the best guess that I can see for who they are. Because the other guess was that it was Wirt and Greg, and they don't look anything like Wirt and Greg, and they're not dressed like Wirt and Greg, and that makes no sense. So I'm going with McLaughlin brothers. Cool. This circle of hell, do you want to uh, guess what the theme for this one is? What do you think the frogs are guilty of? How many sins are left? Um, okay, so we got, so gluttony, lust, uh, greed are gone already. So what's left? We got pride, wrath, sloth, and, um, envy. Is it, is it envy? It is not envy. I was thinking green with envy. Is this sloth? It is not sloth. What? What is it? Wrath. I thought wrath was going to be at the end. Uh, no. Uh, wrath is, this is, this is the anger and the city of dis level. So this, this whole level of hell is a city. I don't know why this one specifically is a city. I don't, you know, I don't know if cities were already violent places in the 14th century i would imagine anytime there's a lot of people in small areas there's going to be more stuff happening so in this version of hell the sticks the river sticks serves as a double purpose so as a river it separates upper hell from lower hell and it also functions as the sort of marshy circle for the wrathful sinners so this part of the sticks and this layer of hell is a city of a, a swamp city. Sin swamp. Um, so in the Inferno, it, blip, they also don't pay for passage in the Inferno because they are living and that would have damned them to hell. Only the dead pay, essentially. If you think of it as, you know, uh, signing a contract, sort of, as soon as like how some people will sell their car to someone for a dollar because they just want to give them the car, but selling it to them for a dollar allows them to have like a paper trail and legal transfership of ownership and also like write it off as a tax thing. That's that sort of thing. So as soon as you pay, a contract has been made. As soon as money is like, or, or I'll put it in a better call Saul way. There's a part in Breaking Bad where he makes Jesse and, and Walt put $5 into his pocket because they have his hands tied behind his back, but also because uh, they're talking about illegal things. And he's like, okay, put $5 into my pocket. Now I'm your lawyer. We have confidentiality. It's that sort of thing. So because Greg sort of unknowingly saves them from becoming permanent residents of the unknown by having them sneak aboard the ferry. <laughs> so once, a Gre once again, Greg is sort of the accidental uh, shaman, not sure what's it called, the uh, when you're really, the accidental sage here. They pay their passage with music. Can you think of another myth where passage into the underworld is paid with music? Um... There's a Broadway musical about it. Oh, freaking Hadestown? 
Is it Orpheus? There yeah. You go. Orpheus. So Orpheus very famously uses his lyre, his harp sort of thing, to get entrance into the underworld, not just by uh, playing it so that the entrance itself is revealed to him, but also playing it to put Cerberus to sleep, playing it uh, to... Uh, he essentially makes, like, Karen... Depending on the version, he either annoys Karen into bringing him across because Karen doesn't want to hear him play anymore, or he plays such a beautiful song that Karen is moved, that sort of thing. In this version we see this sort of anger of the frogs, this wrath of the frogs as a result of Greg and Wirt sneaking onto the ferry. They are caught by a police frog, I guess, run around the ship being, you know, chased and yelled at and then ruin the band. They like bust into a drum. They knock over the bassoonist. Everything's ruined. Everyone's really angry. Frogs are apparently super into bassoon. And then Wirt plays... And everybody calms down. And this frog, George Washington, I think is his name at this point, I can't keep up, uh, sings. And this is the second time we, the audience, hear him sing, but the first time the characters hear him sing. And it is that sort of combination of, of magic and music that allows them to finish their journey on this ferry. At the end of the journey, what we see... Uh, is the frogs sinking into the mud, which is exactly what Dante finds, except it's a lot less cute because in this, the city of Dis, in the Inferno, all the people in the mud are A, people, and B, just sort of beating the shit out of each other. The punishment here is really each other. Um... Because they're just angry and it, it is WrestleMania mud bath, no holds barred cage match. And, you know, Virgil tells him he's looking at these souls destroyed by anger and that even more lie under the, the mud and the waters of the sticks and that all the bubbles that, that rise through this, this river and the swamp aren't like from gas or heat. It's the people screaming and uh Virgil can actually understand their words to some degree and he like repeats them to Dante and lets them know lets him know what they're saying uh the exit of anger is through in the inferno is through the city of Dis um whose walls separate the passive sins supposedly from the active ones I don't know how the decision of what a passive sin is versus an active sin, because again, like, we already covered lust, and that seems like a pretty active sin to me. This is also, we also get to see anger sort of rise out of Wirt when he confronts Beatrice, because as we leave the, the, the anger and wrath and frogs behind, we visit Adelaide. She isn't mapped to a part of the Inferno. This is over the Garden Wall, so this is separate. She's not, this isn't like a part of hell, necessarily. In this part also, though, of the, in this part of the Inferno, uh, Dante is stopped at the gates of the city of Dis by shades who essentially are like, we know you say that you have a right to be here, but we don't believe you, and we don't like you, and we're not letting you through. So... Virgil has to, like, 
get angels to show up and let he, he he like calls his dad essentially he calls he calls his boss and gets angels to show up and let them through Wirt and greg in this part are delayed by beatrice and adelaide so they're they're the journey is interrupted in in both sense um it is also uh in this part when they're waiting for the angels to show up there is this thick mist that surrounds them which we see in adelaide's house when she melts evaporates disintegrates into this cloud of smoke and wirt and greg are able to escape while beatrice is sort of lost in the fog uh it is also worth noting there are at at the gates of the city of dis there are these three furies who are winged servants of wrath so beatrice's form as a bluebird being tied to Adelaide, who is shown to have a sort of um, bird motif, if you will, with her scissors, uh, is sort of tied to Wrath and, by extension, the Furies, which is my favorite way to view Beatrice, because they gave her the name Beatrice because of Dante's lost, lo- uh, lo- lost Lover, but I also like that they tie her to a number of other aspects of either the Unknown or Hell, as it were. The Three Furies in the Inferno uh, uh, Inferno also talk about summoning Medusa to turn Dante to stone, which freaks him out to no end, and uh, is sort of representative of, you know, Adelaide threatening to, I believe she said, like, pull their brains out and replace it with fluff, yes? Yes. Some weird shit, some mind control shit. Talking about Adelaide, as a figure, she is represented not just by a bird motif, but as a uh, spider motif, given her penchant for weaving and sewing. And uh, she is even depicted in a sort of like hourglass uh, looking outfit. If you look at her like shawl and the way that it's all put together, you know, very, very Black Widow-esque. She traps them in her web and things like that. In the Inferno, a bit of impactful foreshadowing. We don't see this until the next episode in Over the Garden Wall. But at this point, Virgil, who has up until now been this fearless guide, for a moment is described as standing pale and helpless, speaking brokenly to himself. He is struck by the shades and the furies who are willfully opposing God and Jesus, essentially by refusing their passage through here. So it eventually gets all sorted out, obviously. The angels show up and they are allowed through the city and and continue on through hell. But the very fact that they would defy God in this manner shakes Virgil's foundations a bit, which I think is a little weird because you are in hell. So if you're stunned by people defying God, you are in the wrong place, right? Like, is that that not... No, you're right. It's like, how did they end up there, bestie? Yeah. Like, I show, like you show up to a, a food festival and are shocked by people chewing with their mouths open. Like, you're outside at a food festival. You should be shocked that people have clothes on. At the same, at the same point, Wirt and Greg sort of face this... Uh, Beatrice, ostensibly their friend, betrays them. And while we, the audience, know why she was going to and then inevitably didn't betray them, they never get that resolution, or at least in that point don't get this resolution. They just walk into this trap and then have to deal with feeling betrayed in that way. 
and later we do see uh if not work greg his um optimism sort of shaken as well when he has to take over when work really has given up hope uh, and that's the first thing that sort of shakes greg is Wirt saying, I don't care, now you are in charge. And Greg being like, oh, wow, I'm in charge? I don't know how to deal with that. Adelaide herself also can be tied to a, 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 a lot of depictions of, of servants of Satan. So she directly references the beast and how she serves him. So that sort of witch motif is very solid there, right? Uh, literally like pointed hat, et cetera, et cetera. She's also a good reference of the fates oh, yeah. in Greek mythology who would decide the future of souls and the fate of human beings. They are depicted also sewing and weaving and cutting people's threads. If you think about the, the fates from Hercules, the Disney movie, how they you know did all that mess. Um, they are also mushed together with the Grey Sisters who are a different tri trio who could see the future, but Disney just decided to sort of slam them into one group so the the three fates in the original mythology don't share an eye that's just the gray sisters but whatever so adelaide being depicted with thread and shears and and that sort of motif is is an homage to that uh her transforming adelaide not adelaide her transforming beatrice into a blue bird made me think of the myth of the six swans where six princes are turned into swans and they're one remaining sister has to sew them these magical jackets made of nettles in order to transform them back. It's a really good, one of my favorite fairy tales. I would recommend looking it up. It's a lesser known one. And of course, Adelaide melting is a very clear reference to the Wicked Witch of the West and sort of cements her homage as a Wicked Witch. But I also like instead of... Um, water she's just allergic to the night air i'm always a fan of when this uh very dangerous people have very silly weaknesses it's always fun for me and as we move into the next circle this is a little bit of a spoiler but i'm gonna say it anyway she is a, a an early example of a heretic which you know would be someone who strays from the word of god quite simply the also i wanted to bring this up greg leaves the frog behind and the frog returns to them despite greg leaving the frog behind and the frog not being present during their trip to adelaide's house it is still included in the story this makes me think that the frog isn't the narrator right which was like a, a, is a popular internet theory that he's just lying about everything but the fact that the story follows them even when he's not in it if, if it really was, you know, his story telling it, I don't know, that just seems like a weird part to me. As we move out of Adelaide's house, we move into the circle of the heretics, which we will cover in the next episode, The Ringing of the Bell. End of part three.